You are listening to Intersections with Phil Allen Jr., engaging the issues that matter at the intersection of race, culture, and theology. I am so honored to have this week's guest on Intersections and to share our conversation with you. I attended a Zoom webinar months ago, and my guest, Dr. Rosalind Satchel, was one of the panelists. I was so moved and drawn to her words and her wisdom as she spoke. There's some people when they speak, they more than get your attention. They actually shake things up within you. And that's what she did with me. Her passion and fire were contagious. And immediately I knew I needed to get her on the podcast. And she agreed to come on. Dr. Satchel is a scholar, an activist, a lawyer, a minister, a professor, a mother, and an author. She serves as the Blanche E. Seaver Professor of Communications at Pepperdine University. She is also a Berkman Klein Center Fellow at Harvard Law School. She's the author of What Movies Teach Us About Race, Exceptionalism, Erasure, and Entitlement, which can be purchased on Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com right now. She's a dynamic speaker that won't only be heard, but also felt in this episode. This episode is part two of our conversation. So I invite you to buckle your seatbelt, listen, and enjoy the episode. All views expressed by Dr. Satchel are her own views and not those of any organization or institution she may be affiliated with. Okay. I have a couple, couple more questions for you. One, oh. one is about BLM, about Black, Black Lives Matter. Okay. And you're involved in BLM in, in Los Angeles. Yes. Um, talk about, I know for me, the frustrations around the rhetoric from opponents of BLM. I actually got into, <laughs> I actually got into a conversation that if we weren't on Zoom, it would have led to like, the, <laughs> oh boy, with a pastor, a white pastor that had posted some things. And I, I, you know, I, I barely knew him, but I knew him. I reached out to him privately and um, to have a conversation about it because he was, he was uh, categorizing the, the the protest in as violence. Um, we couldn't support it. Blah blah blah. Just the typical um, talking points. And so I was challenging that. But but talk talk about both the the frustrations from the rhetoric from that type of rhetoric, but also the hopefulness of the movement for justice. Um, and also as a second question, how are BLM and civil rights movement and the Black Power movement? How are what are the, some common threads and what is what is what this was distinct about BLM than those movements? That's two questions. Oh, then, you're gonna have to separate those, man. I'll separate it. I'll separate I'm it. never gonna remember. Okay, um, let's, let's talk about the, the frustrations and the hopefulness of the movement. Okay, all right. Frustrations uh, from the, pro the opponents and the hopefulness um, of, of the movement for justice. Yeah. Black Lives Matter as a movement builds on every movement before it um, for black liberation. Um, one of the things that we have worked very hard to do is to help everyone understand that historical continuum. Um, we see ourselves as a contemporary outgrowth of the black power movement we see ourselves drawing on many of the strategies, especially the most radical strategies of the civil rights movement, the 
uh, women's rights movement, largely the black women who were leading um, that women's rights movement that eventually pushed them out. Um, speaking to the Mary Church Terrells, September Clarks, um, Ella Baker. So we, we draw on all of our greatest ancestors wisdom and we require as a part of our membership process, uh, political education classes. So people have to read and have to come to lectures and have to learn how all of this fits together and also how to draw on the lessons of the past so that we don't repeat the mistakes of the past. Um, we have scholars, mothers, kids, unemployed folks, uh, folks in college, folks who've never finished high school. Um, every ethnicity represented uh, within the global movement for Black lives. Um, it's a beautiful panoply of people, including our allies who are white under the banner of AWARE, um, which is our partner organization, we also call White People for Black Lives. Um, white People for Black, Black Lives, WP4BL. Um, you can look them up and find them. Um, we have a number of um, folks who identify as non-white and non-Black who are a part of this movement. But the leaders of the movement are Black. We are very intentional about foregrounding Black scholars, Black leaders, Black research, Black activism, Black history, Black heritage, Black power. Um, we are anti anything that derives, deprives our people of, of life. So anything that is heterosexist, um, sexist, capitalist, patriarchal, we're challenging it. Um, ability to discrimination, we're challenging it, but we're challenging it as it affects black people and black lives and by our terms, which is a different move. As you may recall from history, um, NAACP, and other organizations like it evolved out of white leadership um, and white activists. Um, there were white abolitionists and we are grateful for them um, in the anti-slavery movement, but often the white abolitionists received more notoriety than the black abolitionists who, whose lives were put on the line. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we're not going to allow to happen is that that's not gonna happen with the Black Lives Matter movement. As a member of Black Lives Matter Los Angeles, the original chapter of the movement, we have, I believe, presented a wonderful grassroots movement model that can be replicated anywhere around the world where people want to build 
safe, secure communities for ourselves. We are um, disruptors in the tradition of all the great disruptors who came before us, Rosa Parks, uh, Martin King, Malcolm X, and we definitely recognize that disrupting the status quo is absolutely essential to shining a light on the injustices that are happening in our communities every day. We are intentional when we do our disruption um, demonstrations, we are typically in centers of power, whether those are centers of economic power or political power. So we're at city halls or we're at um, the Grove in Beverly Hills or um, down at Santa Monica Pier, the people, the places where people move on when our folks die. When our folks suffer and our folks are killed by police and over policing, when police are over policing our communities, where, where do people continue to move on like nothing's happening? Mm -hmm. we, that's where we need to be. Mm -hmm. And so we do Christmas caroling in our Black Esmus campaign where we go and we sing songs of Black liberation in Christmas melodies <laughs> to white people in wealthy communities. And we, are, we, we have a Black Santa that comes out and everything. And it's important, you know, it, we've got to be creative. These folks are not paying attention. Yeah. They were not paying attention. Yeah. Now they are. Seven years ago, when I started working with this movement, we couldn't get people to say Black Lives Matter. People all around me told me that I was sabotaging my career by being associated with this movement. Now, I can turn on my TV and on Amazon Fire or on any other channel, we see Black Lives Matter as a slogan. This is, this is progress that we cannot underestimate. That is a change in discourse. And when we change social discourse, according to the research, it's really an important part of changing public opinion. Changing public opinion is an important part of changing public policy. And so what we are doing is being very strategic. We understand not everybody agrees with our tactics. Not everybody agrees with our strategies. That's why there are so many organizations everybody can get involved in. Go be with some folks, go work with some folks that you do believe in if you don't like the way we do it. Because we do have moments during our meetings where we are very intentional about having exclusively black spaces. And we do ask non-black people, non-black members, to have another meeting with themselves. Yeah. And we have these kinds of internal conversations. The internal conversations, honestly, are what give me the greatest hope because it's the internal conversations where accountability occurs. It is within our own uh, relationship uh of our relationships of intimacy, right? The places where we have um, some sense of commonality, some sense of closeness, some sense of trust, where we can actually hear and receive 
more willingly. I mean, it's, it's, it's replete in the research that the ways in which we actually engage in persuasion are actually more effective when they happen within our own personal group of identification, our identification group. And so within our white allies, they started aware. BLM didn't start aware. Our white allies who came to Black Lives Matter meetings out of those internal conversations for whites only, we that we, you know, require, this was not white people requiring that it's a white only space. That's all different. That's yeah. that's a power issue. And, yeah. and yeah. so we've got a different dynamic that happens there. But when you come into a black space, we do recognize that racialization in this country, it does produce a certain social conditioning. And that racialization is different for each group. Um, what we are able to do with Black Lives Matter Los Angeles is advance our strategic objectives to take away the abusive power that is happening from law enforcement towards our black and brown communities, particularly those who are impoverished. When we say defund the police, we mean exactly that. We want the money going back to the community these police leagues and police unions and police associations are all vestiges of white supremacy. They work very hard against black and brown communities. And they have set up a situation, unfortunately, and this is from our um, friends in law enforcement, my friends in law enforcement, um, that it's gotten to the point now where even black and brown officers are feeling threatened on police forces because they may agree with some of the positions of Black Lives Matter because they see the white supremacy even within the system. And so our black and brown brothers who are in law enforcement are being, you know, honestly, the things I've heard sounds very much like they're being terrorized even within the institution. So we as Black Lives Matter activists and organizers and supporters are really intentional about bringing the focus back to the victims and their families. These are often children, often young Black men and women who are in impoverished communities often doing nothing more than walking down the street, often doing nothing more than sleeping in a car. You, we all have stories, you, I'm sure you do. I mean, I, it's, it's, it's insidious. And we as black folks have been trying to compensate for this evil. Mm -hmm by you know teaching our children to you know don't look at people you know don't look people in the eye hold your head down when you walk by white people just move around them no that's teaching subordination that's yeah. teaching inferiority yeah. no when you see a white person look them in the eye challenge them when they're wrong talk back every chance you get do not cede your seat on I mean, your your place on the sidewalk all those things that we learned 
as a part of these vicious systems of slavery, segregation, and any other manifestation of white supremacy, we are unteaching. And that is what I love about the Black Lives Matter movement is that we are challenging fundamental presuppositions um, that are imposed on our communities. Um, during the elections, a lot of black communities, a lot of black churches in particular were encouraged to turn against the Black Lives Matter movement, saying that they, um, that, you know, we were just trying to eliminate black men from the black family and all this other foolishness that is absolutely absurd. And anyone who has ever been a part of a Black Lives Matter meeting knows it's simply not true because you come into a meeting with us, it is going to be one of the most loving, enriching experiences. I mean, I used to go to Black Lives Matter meetings like they were church because we were, we number one, we held spirituality at the center. And we made sure that that spirituality had multiple access points for people from a variety of different cultures, beliefs, experiences, backgrounds, um, orientations, or otherwise. We wanted everybody to feel welcome because that is the model of, I mean, for me, that's the model of Jesus. I mean, that's, that's what I got out of the Christian story, that there's a, a radical egalitarian inclusion that happens when Jesus shows up, right? That there's like this, this radical mystical thing that shakes up the status quo and turns everything around, throws the, the coin collectors out of the temple and turns over chairs and yeah. tables. That, that this is the tradition. I believe that we are operating within as a Black Lives Matter movement. Now, I say that because I'm a Christian clergy person, but my Muslim sister who is, you know, definitely coming at it from her own background can definitely ground it in the Quran and brothers and sisters in other traditions can ground it in their own teachings and that that is a good thing. Right. That, that that's that that's that's if we really want to talk about the kingdom of God, that's what I that's the kingdom of God. When 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 we can put aside all our differences and come together and learn together and love together and be together and build each other up and not have to do one upping over each other and all the competitive backbiting and foolishness. That's. That's what, that's the reign of God I'm waiting on. And I am working toward, right? So not just waiting on it. I'm not waiting for, for nobody to come through the clouds. I'm really not. I'm fully expecting that one day we're going to learn, oh, that was Jesus the whole time? Mm. Oh, dang, that was the one that we put in prison. That was the one? The police officers beat down. That was the one that didn't have a house to live in. That's the one nobody loved. That's the one that smelled worse than everybody. That's the one who was struggling and didn't have nothing. That's when we gonna realize Jesus been here all along. Jesus has been here with us and we did nothing. What's that beautiful scripture? What do you do for the least of these? The least of these, Matthew 25. What did you do? 
And, and so that's that's why I do this work. And that's the hope. That's the hope of Black Lives Matter for me, for me personally. You know, I I, I want a world where descendants of Africa can live in the wealth and joy and peace that we once had before colonialism and enslavement. I want it back. I want the village back. I sat outside and I did something yesterday. I learned a new word. I didn't know this word before and I did it and it was amazing. It's called stooping. I know you probably know it. Everybody probably does. Stooping is something that I didn't learn in South Florida. We didn't stoop. Mm -hmm. We just didn't. We didn't have stoops. On the front of the house, literally, most Black houses don't even have front porches because they didn't want us sitting out looking like porch monkeys. That's what they used to call us, mm -hmm. which was horrible. But here's how vicious, this is how vicious white supremacy is internalizing that oppression within the black community has led to folks saying things like, don't go sit out there on no front of your porch looking like no, you know, I mean, yeah, it, it, yeah, it, yeah. It, it's vicious. And so I did not know this tradition, but I sat outside yesterday with my neighbors for the first time. Well, not my neighbors, honestly. I went over to a friend's house to be with her neighbors because it's a much more diverse community. My community is not. And unfortunately. Um, so I went over to her house, their house, and we stooped. And it was beautiful. Everybody, people of every hue and thought and orientation, walking by, speaking, talking. Hey, how you doing? How you holding up? You okay? Oh, it's been a long time since I've seen you. It's so good to see you. How you doing? Oh, look at how tall your children getting. Oh, I mean, it was community, man. Yeah. It was church. And we were sitting outside just kicking it. Yeah. And yeah. the kids were running around. They all had their masks on. Those who weren't wearing masks were sitting at least six feet apart. It was safe. It was cool. And it is what we need so bad right now. Yeah, that yeah. is what we need in every one of our communities. But so many of our communities, I don't see it. I see our elders walking around outside by themselves. Breaks my heart. I mean, truly breaks my heart. Because I can see them. They're just, it's like they just looking for somebody to talk to. Mm -hmm. yeah, and it's I, so sad. I didn't know it was called stooping. <laughs> as you described it, I missed that. You know, that's that's home. That's yeah. Home. And the, the elders you talk about um, walking around by themselves, they're longing for that. That's yeah. how they grew up. Exactly. You, you know, that's how I grew up. That's how we came up. And um, yeah as introverted, as highly introverted as I am and self-sufficient and I'm okay being by myself, I do miss that. I do, I, I grew I up- I didn't know how much I missed it. You know? I didn't know how much I missed it. I mean, yeah. like we didn't do it that way in Florida, but yeah. you know, folks would sit out and you know, it'd oh, be a shade tree or something. Under, but, the, under the tree. Right. <laughs> we, I mean, li literally on campus, right. And now we talking about HBCU. Literally on yes. campus, on by at the bottom of my dorm, was the tree. We called the tree of knowledge. For reason, for reasons other than wisdom, 
it. it was a tree of knowledge. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was where most of the football players sat and some, you know, sometimes the basketball yep. team and other guys come through and it'd just be a bunch of us. And that's what we're doing. We're stupid. We are. We're talking, that's- we're laughing, we're kicking it, we're hanging it. It's community. And you see this- that in every black community. Yeah. Right? And we need it. We need it. But I don't know that it's happening like it used to. No. Just no. I worry. I I mean, especially if I might just talk about my socioeconomic class. I'm particularly concerned around these affluent folks who think that they can do it all by themselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I honestly, you know, I know when I go from South Florida back here to where I live, I traverse multiple socioeconomic statuses. Mm-hmm which is why it's important for me to go back regularly. Yeah. But little things like, when I'm in Malibu and I go to the grocery store and I see black people, I get excited because it's so rare. I know where you're going. You know what happens almost invariably. Hi, how are you? I, have, I haven't met you before, I'm Rosalind. And they act like they scared. I just had this conversation. I mean, they it's like they 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 it's almost like, oh, don't expose that I'm black too. Oh, why are you talking to me? I don't know you just because you're black. No, there's some certain cultural norms that within our traditions mm-hmm. we have. Mm-hmm. And and I I think that there's something that happens with affluence or perceived or aspirational affluence, let's say that, where we start forgetting who our people are and we don't want to be identified with blackness anymore. Yeah. And I am particularly disgusted by it. Um, It has made my experience experience, quite honestly, of California, um, pretty wanting because I I don't understand this type of um, isolation. Um, and and uh, it's a it, it honestly seems an embarrassment to be black. Yeah. There, there's a, a sense of shame. Um, that comes with being seen talking to a black person around here, apparently for some black people, which is really outrageous to me because it seems to me then that assimilation into the dominant culture has outweighed self-respect and self-love. And folks are too busy really being concerned about the white gaze, right? The white gaze now has more power than 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 white folks over us. I, I this is you know my I, I, a lot of times I do focus on the internal work. My and it's largely because my my concern is for black folks more yeah. because of the the vestiges of all of these horrible systems we live in. I am concerned about the lack of community out here. It's a bunch of black people in Malibu, bunch of them. 
don't want to be seen. Sometimes it seems it seems like they don't even want to be seen with each other. And I think that a lot of that goes into goes back to that internalized oppression um, that I, I write about in the book and I talked a little bit about earlier. You know, after you see blackness associated with negativity so much, so much that you want to be anything other than black. Yeah. And that that is what white supremacy wants. Mm. That's the goal, right? Is to make us want to be white, right? When white people aren't white, right? White people are not white. There's no such thing as a white people. I mean, the, the whole idea yes. is absolutely laughable. It's it's a total social construction yeah. and 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 the scholars who have documented all of his pieces and parcels are, so, parcels are so plentiful that there's no need for me to repeat that. Um, but I do want to point people into the direction of, of really coming out of these color codes because um, your ethnicity has nothing to do with a color. Our ethnicity has more to do with the ways in which our cultural norms inform our traditions and practices. And that is not race. Race is actually a misnomer. Race is a, it's something they came up with, honestly, out of, out of this whole table of opposites that Aristotle put together. And when we, when we go from philosophy and we see how it feeds into these other disciplines, it has been often um, really the subject of, of justification. You know, like everything has been to set up to justify us, us associating all good traits with whiteness and all bad traits with blackness. And so then when we have immigrant populations coming into the United States and then they want to be identified as anything other than black, we, we can see how it works. Yeah. We see how it works. Yeah. None of us are stupid. We get it. But it's almost like there's, um, there's a punishment that comes from pointing out the truth. There's a punishment uh, that comes uh, from, I, I know, definitely um, opponents, but even the systems themselves um, can unknowingly uh, punish us for speaking the truth, um, for challenging the truth and veracity of those images and ideologies that we take in through these screens. And I'm just encouraging more and more people to challenge it and fight back because as a people, our salvation has come in fighting back, not sitting by passively and waiting for anybody to give us anything. Yeah. Power concedes nothing without a demand. Yeah. So we are clear that we have to demand and we have to fight and we will be um, called all kinds of things because of it, right? I mean, that's, they did it to Jesus too, right? I mean, come on. Crucifixion comes to those of us who challenge the power structure. Exactly. It is a part of the process, but to those of us who believe, we believe 
that that's not the end of the story, right? We, we, we still are people of, of resurrection belief. Mm. You know, we still believe in the miraculous. We still believe in the, the mystical. We still believe that we don't have it all figured out. And somehow or another, the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost is going to show up right on time, <laughs> right? You know, I mean, like that's, that's us who we are as a people. And I'm grateful for it. And I, I, I carry it with me and I, I try my hardest to live up to the standards of excellence that our ancestors and elders have set before us. And as long as I do that, I will just automatically by nature challenge the stereotypes and ideologies of white supremacy because they're lies. Yeah. Yeah. And this is the truth. Wow. I want to I want to end right there. I want to end on that. I want to end on that. Um, I want to encourage everyone who's listening to go out and get Dr. Satchel's book, What Movies Teach About Race, Exceptionalism, Erasure, and Entitlement. On Amazon, for sure. I got my copy. And I'm gonna I'm gonna order actually today. I got it in my book list, my wish list. Um, Yay! Thank you. This has been an incredible conversation, um, a series of sermons. <laughs> I want to call it. Be sure to follow Dr. Satchel on Instagram at Doc Razzle Dazzle. That's at D O C R A Z Z L E D A Z Z L E. On Twitter at R Satchel, that's at R-S-A-T-H-E-L, or on Facebook at Rosalind M. Satchel. Do not forget to purchase Dr. Satchel's book, What Movies Teach Us About Race, Exceptionalism, Erasure, and Entitlement, as well as my book, Open Wounds. Both can be purchased on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. Thank you for joining me and parking with me at the intersections.